WDBM East Lansing. The impact. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure gives a voice to our community and provides a forum for discussing the relevant issues of today. Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, this is Impact Exposure. You're tuned into Exposure here on Impact 89 FM. I'm your host, Daniel Rizal. Tonight, you'll hear my interview with Emily Brozovic, the founder of the People Like Me application, a service that allows users to find, rate, and review LGBT-friendly businesses. Next, we'll go to my interview with Tony Huff and Brandon Manson with coverage on their podcast on Michigan Craft Brewing. To finish off the show, we'll explore the historical significance of Dungeons & Dragons. But first, here's your weekly Impact Update. Now it's time for an update from Impact News. Exposure will continue in just a moment. First, here's your weekly Impact update. I'm your anchor, Nick Stanek. Two people were killed in separate attacks yesterday in Denmark's capital. The 22-year-old gunman acted alone when he opened fire during a free speech seminar in a Copenhagen cafe, killing one person before fleeing to a synagogue and killing another. Several were wounded at both locations, and police shot and killed the gunman this morning and have not released his name. The free speech seminar featured a controversial Swedish cartoonist, and police told local media that the attack may have been inspired by the attacks on Charlie Hebdo last month. Up next, we go to Impact reporter Emily McPherson with a local shot at vaccines. The Michigan Department of Community Health is becoming stricter with regards to refusing vaccination. As of January 1, 2015, parents will be thoroughly educated by local health workers about vaccines, and if they are still against the vaccination, they must sign the universal state form. This form states that the parents understand that they may be putting their own children at risk along with others. Governor Rick Snyder voiced his opinion and stated, I would hope people would get their kids vaccinated unless they have a serious religious or other reason not to do so. With Michigan being the fourth most vaccinated state in the U.S., it seems we are leaning towards vaccination becoming mandatory in our future. With Impact News, I'm Emily McPherson. Now Impact reporter Kim Alchatel gives you your weekly entertainment news, including Impact's 26th birthday show. On Friday, February 27th, Flint Eastwood will be performing in celebration of Impact 89 FM's 26th birthday. The Detroit native band with an indie dance rock vibe is set to perform at The Loft in Lansing. Other shows to look forward to is Two Cellos, who will be performing February 22nd at the Wharton Center. Two Cellos is a Croatian duo known for their cello covers of various popular songs. Also coming is Wicked Divas, Broadway and Beyond, a combination performance featuring the Lansing Symphony Orchestra and Broadway performers Nicole Parker and Emily Rosek. The one-night-only show is set for February 21st at 8 p.m. With your entertainment news, I'm Kim Elchatel. Finally, we hear from Impact reporter Aaron Martinez with his coverage on President Obama's latest actions with ISIS. President Barack Obama took the first steps in officially declaring war on Islamic terrorists in Iraq and Syria last Wednesday by asking Congress to approve a war authorization that would allow him to send U.S. forces to be engaged in airstrikes and training missions overseas. The president's plan has been met with some pushback from both Democrats and Republicans who say the plan is too broad and doesn't provide enough direction. The three-year plan is now headed to the Republican-controlled Congress for approval. I'm Nick Stanek, and this has been your weekly Impact Update. Now back to Exposure. 
You're tuned into Exposure here on Impact 89 FM. I'm Daniel Rizal, and I'm here with Emily Brozovic, the founder of the People Like Me application service that allows users to find, rate, and review LGBT-friendly businesses. How are you today? Good. Thank you for having me. Now, uh, how did you first get involved with the People Like Me app? People Like Me actually started as a master's thesis project for me a couple years ago as a master's student here in ComArts. And, uh, you know, I wanted to do a project-based thesis that would essentially create something that could be used by people. Now, how many people are involved with the creation and the production of the app? So there's myself, and I have four other developers that have helped bring the application to life. So when you first created the app, uh, did you have it in mind to just be something that was East Lansing-based, or was your ultimate goal to expand it to other cities and states? Ultimately, the goal was to be as far-reaching as possible. Um, we, you know, we certainly intended to start out here locally in terms of, you know, getting the word out, getting users, getting people involved with it. But um, the platform itself is accessible um, internationally at this point. And uh, so, aside from it being part of your, I guess, your master thesis uh, work, uh, was there really any other inspiration that brought you to want to create the application? Um, a lot of it stemmed from, you know, at the time my, my advisor was really great and said, well, you know, if you want to create something for people, um, you know, you should go out and A, figure out something that you're passionate about, and B, um, find a problem to solve. And so that was really where it started. And, you know, being a member of the LGBT community myself, there's, there are always issues, you know. Um, unfortunately, while we have come a long way in that regard, um, there are still a lot of issues within the community today, you know, in the news and things like that. Um, and so that was really kind of where my passion and needs that I saw just kind of aligned and out, you know, that's where this came from. Have you worked with any of the LGBT groups here on campus? Um, I have in terms of reaching out to them um, to get some users, get some testers, things like that. Um, I have gone and um, I've spoken with specifically um, West Circle Pride here on campus, as well as PRISM. I've also reached out to the LGBT Center on campus, who's offered to put the application out in their newsletter and on their website, um, just to help us kind of promote it and get it out there and get some early users for us. Kind of give me a rundown of how the app would work. If I were to go on and sign on sure. today, what would kind of be the process for sure. me to use it? Okay, so... Um, the app is available on any device that has a browser. So our intent was to be, again, as widely accessible as possible. So whether you have a phone, tablet, desktop, um, as long as you have a browser, you can get to us. It's peoplelikemeapp.com. You can create an account for free. And essentially, when you log into the application, um, it's based on your location. And so especially if you're in the Lansing area, which is where we've had most of our activity, you will find when you first log in, um, a stream of recent activity, so recent rating and reviews of businesses here in the greater Lansing area that people have been uh, putting in the application. Um, from there, you can either search for businesses specifically by their name, or you can browse nearby, which is, you know, let's say you've gone someplace and you're visiting in town and you, you've never been there before. Um, the browsing functionality allows you to take a look categorically at what types of businesses you'd like to go to. Maybe you'd like to go grab a coffee or maybe you'd like to go grab lunch or something like that. So you can browse based on your location for certain types of businesses and then gather ratings and reviews that may have been left in that area. Now, what sets people like me apart from other review websites and applications like Yelp, for example? I get that. <laughs> 
Interesting question. Um, you know, a lot of times people do when they first take a look at it, they say, oh, well, you know, it kind of reminds me of Yelp and that you're rating, you know, and reviewing businesses. Uh, but I think our, our unique angle is that we are specifically geared towards the LGBT population. Uh, to my knowledge, there is nothing else like us out there. Um, there. There is not a platform that provides this type of service directly for the LGBT community um, to target their specific experiences with businesses. And uh, if I understood correctly, uh, the app focuses around positive reviews. Could you kind of expand on that review system? Sure. So a lot of that really is was my own uh, personal feelings with building the application. You know, I, I personally think, you know, we, we talk a lot in the community about where we shouldn't go and, and why we shouldn't go there. And while in certain cases, I do think that's absolutely important, you know, especially in cases of, you know, safety and things like that for an LGBT individual, it's um, extremely important. But it also made me realize that on the flip side, we don't necessarily talk enough about, well, then where should we go? You know, why aren't we, why aren't we giving praises and props to those businesses that, you know, you're a regular at and they know you and they know your partner or, you know, boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever. And it's, it's not a big deal. They're welcoming to you. They invite you in with open arms. You know, why, why not give more props to those types of businesses? Now, do you feel that positive reviews might be more effective than negative reviews? That might be more, uh, I guess, a, a way to organize boycotts for a business? Or do you feel like they each kind of have their own place? I think they, you know, depending on the situation, I think they both have their own place. But, um, you know, I, I like to think that we could all use a little more, a little more positive in our lives these days. And I think that uh, by us trying to focus on that and trying to bring light to that, that I, I do think that in the long run, you know, we provide a platform for something good and, and something that has a lot of great potential that hasn't, that hasn't been tapped into yet. Now, does the app focus around like small businesses, like the mom and pop shops, or does it also include like uh, corporate chains? It includes both at this time. Uh, we utilize um, the Foursquare's business um, data API to pull in business information. So essentially, anyone who is on Foursquare, whether that's a mom and pop shop or a chain um, business, is filtered into our application. Sure. Uh, have you thought about expanding to other areas of potential discrimination, like race, gender? I, you know, I, I have initially, and that was kind of um, some of the thinking, or, or I should say, what stemmed out of the name "People Like Me" is, you know, I kind of realized, wow, that could that could essentially translate to anyone. It could be race specific, or it could be gender issues, or it could be um, any of those things. I, I definitely think it has the capacity to expand later on. Um, but at this point in time, and with our resources, we're, you know, we're definitely committed to the LGBT niche. And uh, currently, it's uh, in the beta release, correct? Correct. And the full version, when will that be rolling out? So at this point, we are determining, um, based on resources and capabilities that we have, um, we are looking at whether we uh, want to transition to something more like a native app experience to be available in the App Store. I, I've been getting some questions about you know, we've looked for you in the app store, but we don't find you. Um, so that's something that we're considering, which might include more of a full rollout of the application. Um, at this point, we just want to keep building and getting feedback from users into making the application better. 
And, you know, coming up with June and Pride Month, we'd really like to do a lot more pushing out of the application, a lot more advertising, and and really kind of full on uh, give it its promotion at that point. When you uh, first met with some of the LGBT groups here on campus to get some feedback on the application, mm-hmm. what were the responses? You know, I have to say, overwhelmingly, I, I've gotten such positive response and embrace from the students. It's It's been great. Um, you know, intrigue, a lot of questions similar to what you've asked me, you know, well, how did, how did this even come up? How did you think about this? To, you know, this is great. I've never seen anything like this. Or, you know, how can I get it? You know, how can I, how can I help? How can I support this? Um, really, really positive embracing so far from the community. Sure. Now, uh, online on your website, which is peoplelikemeapp.com, correct? Yes. Um, I noticed that there's a bakery on the website titled Emily's Bakery. Now, <laughs> was that your doing? Was that kind of something that you inspired? What's the story behind Emily's Bakery? So funny thing on that is, you know, in the early days, I was really just kind of messing around. I do I do most of the front-end design um, of the application. And, you know, I, I it was just kind of a joke because, in all honesty, that that's another um, aspiration, if you will, that I've always kind of joked, like, it would be really great to have a, a little dessert shop where I would focus on, you know, certain ingredients and certain products and, you know, just make something fun. And, and so that's where that stemmed from. And uh, by the time we were ready to go, we'd, we just kind of kept it and the team, you know, was okay with it. They're like, yeah, sure, let's, let's leave it up. You know, it's kind of like my own personal touch on the app, I guess you could say. Sure. Uh, now, is there anything else that you'd like to share today about anything we discussed? Uh, well, like I mentioned, we would really like to get some more users on board. Um, you know, any feedback that people have, good, bad, indifferent, you know, whatever that may be. Um, we essentially launched, you know, like you mentioned, this sort of beta version, which is sort of a minimum product at this point. But we'd really like to hear from the community, like, you know, how can we how can we enhance this for you? How can we make this better? What are what are we missing? You know, what are what are we doing well? What are we not doing well? Um, and I think the only way we're going to get that is from um, from commitment and engagement with the community. I mean, the application itself is its success is based on community involvement. You know, if if people are not sharing their experiences, then no one is going to know about those experiences. And and that's sort of what we're trying to do is we're trying to create that platform, provide a platform that opens that up to have more of those conversations. So if people would be willing to jump in, give it a try, we have, you know, um, contact form inside the app. They can get in touch with us at any point in time and let us know what they think. And uh, currently, where can they reach out to you for their feedback? Uh, We have a contact form uh, inside the application, or if they'd like to shoot an email to info at peoplelikemeapp.com. And where can they find more news about the application? Sure. They can also... um, or they can hit us up on Facebook or Twitter. Um, it's People Like Me app on both locations. All right. Well, thank you for coming in today, Emily. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. Exposure will return in just a minute. You're listening to Impact Exposure. Exposure. 
Smoking helpline. Yes, I need to start smoking right away. Excuse me? I need to start smoking. Well, actually, it's the Stop Smoking Helpline. The people in the apartment next to mine smoke three packs a day, and it drives me crazy. So I'm thinking four packs will do it. I think you want MySmokeFreeApartment.org. It gives you the information you need to work toward a smoke-free apartment building. A smoke-free building? Without all that smoking. Uh, yeah, that's right. Make your apartment smoke-free without making a stink. MySmokeFreeApartment.org. For more variety than you'll hear on any other station, listen to the Impact Primetime, Primetime, where you can find a different specialty show every night of the week. Wednesday nights from 8 until midnight, it's the Impact's Accidental Blues, your source for great blues music, news, and concert information. Only on Impact Primetime. Hola, my name is Esperanza. After a tragic incident, I was forced from a life of riches in Mexico to a life of poverty in the United States. My mother has become ill and we have become separated from our family. Now I must work for both of us to try to bring the rest of our family together. My name is Esperanza and I am trying to survive. Explore new worlds. Read my story in the novel Esperanza Rising by Pam Muñoz Ryan. For other great book ideas, visit your local library or log on to literacy.gov. Brought to you by the Library of Congress and the Ad Council. Now back to Impact Exposure. Welcome back to Exposure here on Impact 89 FM. Up next, I talk with Tony Huff, the Facilities Director here at Holden Hall, the home of Impact 89 FM, and his longtime friend, Brandon Manson, two guys who have been creating a podcast on what they believe to be Michigan's greatest natural resource, craft beer. Brandon had to come through all the snow and the elements, but he's here. I, I can't imagine. I had to walk over just five minutes from my dorm to get here, and I, I can't even imagine driving. You've <laughs> got a weather. whole different challenge here with uh, the walking on campus. I, <laughs> That's true. I remember those days quite well and not so fondly. And uh, waking up with the snowblowers in the morning, it's, yep. it's, all, a, it's all a great feeling. All you know? the rage. <laughs> and having to guess which, which sidewalks have been plowed, because when you get this much snow, they tend to have to focus on main thoroughfares. That's true. So you'll true. have to adjust yeah. your route until the last minute. Uh-huh. <laughs> So the two of you have been working on this Michigan Craft Brewing podcast. Now, how long have the two of you known each other, and how did that get started? Whoa, that's a that's we, a good question. We have been pretty much best friends since, what, third grade? Third Miss Shansky's class. Yeah, wow. over yeah. at uh, Hazlitt Public Schools. So it's been, a, it's been a long time. We started the show back in 2012. Back in third grade, no. <laughs> <laughs> Michigan Beer Show. Yeah, <laughs> back in grade. third grade, awesome. 97. Yeah. No, uh, what it was uh, 2012, December mm-hmm. of 2012. Uh, we were just sitting. Uh, I think we were having like an Arcadia Ales something. Yeah. Uh, and we were like, this should be the show. Like we were just kind of just going back and forth, talking about different things. Uh, not as educated on beer at that time. So, you know, it was kind of <laughs> like. It's a funny thing how you learn so much just by doing something, which exactly. is what I tell people all the time. Like if you want to yeah. learn how to do something, just start doing it and like sure. find ways to resources to learn about it but with beer like get a couple of friends who are maybe home brewers or something and just start drinking everything you get your hands on <laughs> and talk in to, moderation in yeah, moderation right and talk to bartenders too because yeah. they have you know just a wealth of information and i think yeah that was like one of the things that we did was like really talk to a lot of bartenders people in the, the just the the craft beer business you know and uh, and just east, getting ideas east lansing especially now with hopcat being here mm-hmm that the culture of that place uh, 
they have really, really intense training for everyone that works there because like their thing is craft beer. So if you want to learn about um, any specific kind of craft beer or just craft beer in general, like go hang out there and talk to those bartenders because they know everything there is to know about it. Now, uh, what can we expect from a typical show? Like, what, what do you guys talk about? Uh, Besides the obvious, of course. Right, but. right. <laughs> um, you know, it's Tony and I, and recently we've we've been able to rope our friend Max Winkler back in. Um, he was a home brewer, not as much time to do that now, but really, really into it. Um, Very so, knowledgeable. Yeah, about. so anytime we have a question about something we're drinking or a style or anything, we just, we'll ask Max about it. Um, other than that, it's just kind of what we've been doing for the last two and a half minutes, just kind of banter and talking. And, uh, you know, it's basically if we were sitting at a bar, it, what, it's what we would be talking about, but we just have microphones in front of us. Yeah, and I, I guess, you know, we normally have three beers that we like to showcase. Um, so we're always at least sampling three beers. So in a show, you can expect to see at least, at minimum, three. Sometimes we can't decide because normally what it is is it's either myself or Brandon going out to the party store before, kind of perusing, hey, what have we tried, what haven't we tried? And so, um, But we normally try to do that three-beer format and then maybe throw in another one if we want. Now, uh, online at your website, michiganbeershow.com, I saw that you had a, a rating system of sorts. So <laughs> 2 to 14. Yeah. Now, yeah. what? Why two to fourteen? Not one to ten or one the, to five. <laughs> the guy who came up with that is not here. I wish that he were here to really go over that. It's silly, um, and it's not. It's not supposed <laughs> to make any sense. We call it what? It's a likability scale. Yeah, it's, it's very much it, how it's you're highly feeling. non-scientific likability scale. Yeah, um, essentially <laughs> what it's Max, the guy who kind of came up with it, and he was talking about how you know everyone does one to ten, you know one to one hundred. But let's do something different. Let's do something unique. 2 to 14. Just come up with that, and then you base your ratings off that. Um, we've They've tried to change it. I've been the one that's been like, no, we're keeping it. Like I'm the George Costanza. This is the show, <laughs> and we're not changing it. <laughs> because I had the same exact question. Why is it 2 to 14? Like When we started, no one was listening to the show, so we just did it because we thought Because we thought funny. it was funny. And then people start listening to the show. <laughs> now I'm, I'm afraid people will be super confused <laughs> and like be sort of off put. Like, why why don't you just do it on one to five or one to ten? And I don't know. Nope. It's just kind of what we do, I guess. It's kind <laughs> yeah. of kind of your own spin. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Too, sure. It's a likability scale, and um, it changes. It's, it's ever changing. Uh, <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> it's it's what it whatever it means to you. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> now uh, back to your website. Is that currently the only place where your podcast is available? Uh, at the moment, yes. Um, you can subscribe there. Uh, we're working out some issues with iTunes right now, so at some point this spring we will be back on iTunes. Right. But yep. if you want to subscribe to the show or listen to anything, go to our website um, and go ahead and subscribe to that feed, and it'll go right to your iTunes, and it'll download it there. So anytime that we update after that, you'll get a, an update. Right, and we always post on Facebook, too. Um, so you can find our, you know, uh, episodes through yeah, that. We're pretty, it routes you to Michigan Beer Show. Yep. Um, we're pretty active com. there too. So you but yeah, but we're pretty active out. on Facebook. Before our interview, you discussed the possibility of getting on terrestrial radio. Is there anything you can share about that or is that kind of under wraps at the moment? Uh, that is pretty much, uh, clandestine at the moment, but, sure. um, we, we have been in talks, uh, to bring the show to terrestrial. So, 
Um, I think right now that's all I can say about it. But just very exciting. Literally, stay mm-hmm. tuned. That's yeah. what I will. All right. Yeah. Very exciting though. <laughs> yeah, we're, I'm, we're, I'm stoked about it. Yeah, we're learning a lot about just uh, that process of you know, you know w- what we can do to make that kind of jump. Yeah, we just just the way the show the way the show came about is like why isn't anyone talking about craft beer? Cause right. Back then. And I think it's still kind of maintaining that level, but, it, but craft beer was exploding. Yeah, it was a boom. I mean, like, we were just getting into, I mean, what? I think the the craftiest beer that we had was Oberon at that time. Yeah. You know, and now we have gone pretty much all over the state <laughs> trying different beers. Yeah. And we've gone as far as Marquette um, to to visit some breweries. Um but yeah, like like you were saying, like there was a boom at that time, and so we were just kind of thinking, like, why is nobody, you know, why why isn't there a forum or like just a uh, a spot, you know, for that that voice? Mm-hmm. And we're like, well, why can't we be that? Yeah, and now I think you've kind of seen that with radio stations actually looking for that kind mm-hmm. of programming to kind yeah, of fill exactly. a niche. So it's it's pretty cool and right place, right time. Sure. Now, are you are you the only? Uh, Michigan beer podcast out there that you know of, or is this the only to... active one? There was a dude doing a podcast mm-hmm. like five years ago that's still up on iTunes, but I don't think he's made a new episode. And then there's some other years. people that are on YouTube um, that I've noticed. Um, not obviously not a podcast, but they do everything you know now and again. Um, we were pretty regular um, from about February of 2013 to about June of 2014, yep. and we're just getting into doing it regularly again you know we both got full-time jobs and you know kind of you know our priorities kind of switched a little bit but we're starting to get back into that mm-hmm. again um but i think that in terms of being the only like beer podcast or youtube channel or something we're probably one of the more regular ones yeah out there sure now earlier you mentioned the i guess the boom of mm-hmm. the interest in michigan craft brewing what do you think caused that or i guess for you guys why Michigan beer. Why not? What what makes us special? You know. Why not I, Michigan beer? <laughs> well, I've, I've got a few uh, hypotheses that I've bandied about. Um, I think you can look back to sort of 2008 with the Great Recession and how hard that hit Michigan. And right around that time, it was a national trend, but especially in Michigan, we started doing that Pure Michigan campaign. And there's a big emphasis that has maintained all the way through till now of buying local and doing things that support your state. So I think there was a big focus on that. And then starting back in the eighties with craft beer with like Sam Adams, um, you know, that's kind of just been a, a slowly growing segment of the market and more of an art form. And I think that really started to take off, um, especially in Michigan because, yeah, we've got people who brew great stuff. We've been doing it for a long time. Um, I know Bell's was a big part um, of of that movement too. So just as that whole attitude started to manifest itself, I think that's, especially in Michigan, that's why it's taking off so well. And we've got, uh, Joe Short's got a hop farm up north now um, near Bel Air, so they're able to provide locally sourced hops, which is pretty cool too. Um, I work in downtown Detroit, and that's, (laughs) we've got, I think five or six breweries within five miles of each other, which is pretty cool. Wow. Yeah. I think Brandon touched on it. It's that, that pure Michigan movement that we've been seeing, you know, the last, you know, five years is just people, you know, take a lot of pride in this state. And um, we've got a lot of, you know, great 
great people, great artists that are, you know, going out there experimenting with, you know, beer. And I think people are really just kind of taking to that craft, you know, um, kind of recognizing that as the art uh, that it has become and is. Uh, now, have either of you made it over to Holland? Uh, yes. That's where I live. So I was okay. just wondering because I think we have, in the past year, we've opened up two different breweries. Sure. Just right. right in downtown. One after the other, just right next door yeah. to each other. <laughs> yeah, that whole west, I'm heading out to Grand Rapids after this, actually. And like you you know growing up on the west side of the state, you can't throw a cat without hitting a brewery. Uh-huh. Like, it's right. insane. <laughs> yeah. I think the one that we went to in Holland was the New Holland. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it was a great... Um, Great time, you know. The brewery was nice. Uh, food was fantastic, and the beer was even better. Uh, <laughs> the beer, yeah. They the, that it, dragon's milk. I I will contend is probably mm-hmm. one of the better bourbon barrel aged stouts out there. You know um, that you can at least go out and get. Yeah, I'm just like just on a whim. You know, I'm a big fan of their Hatter series. Oh because yeah, because I feel like that's been about a that. really yeah. really creative thing that they've done where they start with the. Uh, the, just the regular Mad Hatter IPA, and now they have this thing like I was talking about with the Michigan hops. They have the Michigan Hatter, which is, I think, three different hops all grown in Michigan that are mm-hmm. in that IPA, mm-hmm. and it's really really cool. Um, it's a cool project, and that's my favorite Hatter of them all. A because of the Michigan thing, and B because it tastes really good. Yeah, <laughs> and you're not an IPA guy. I'm get I'm I'm starting there? I'm starting to join the dark side. Oh, honestly, like okay. that's the last Wait, couple the, months. The that's dark all side as being a stout, or just the dark side as in oh, embracing. Sorry. I didn't think about that. You're right. <laughs> yeah, I'm joining the hop side. The hop side doesn't make yeah. any sense. Hop side, but that was good. That's, that's good. actually that's a good name for beer. Let's trademark yeah. that right now. <laughs> all right, we're doing it. You're, hop you're, side. You're hop here. Side. Wait, we got the proof right here. Right. Yep. Here. That's yeah. right. <laughs> Let the record show. Now earlier, so I asked you about. You know, the, I guess the popularity boom of Michigan craft brewing. But now, to you personally, why Michigan beer? What what makes it special to you? To me, I think just the fact that it's all brewed here. That's the that's the biggest thing to me. Um, you know, being a Michigan native, and that's the the re- one of the reasons why I work in Detroit too, is because I really believe in in the comeback of that city and. When Detroit starts to come back, that's when I think Michigan hits a whole different level. Mm-hmm. Um, but just in general, like supporting the state and the fact that the beer is so good is just sort of a positive side effect that makes it pretty easy to, to commit to that. If mm. working out were that easy, I'd be in much better shape. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. Um, yeah, that's a good question. I, I think it's um, I think it's the people, you know, the people that we've met. We've met a lot of fantastic, hardworking people that, you know, say, you know, I quit my job and just kind of went in, you know, I, we're, uh, bad brewing out in Mason. Yeah. You know, the guy was a police officer um, at East Lansing Police Department and at um, Lansing Police Department um, and just decided, hey, I'm going to try this, you know, try making beer, you know, and put himself out there. So to me, it's really the people, you know, the stories you come across, you know, the hardworking guys that are really just trying to make it, and they're making fantastic things. Great. Now, uh, just one more question to wrap up today. Could you give me kind of a sample of how you would open up one of your podcasts? Just kind of do, I guess, uh, sure. an, an, an improv right now. Uh, you know? Improv. Oh, All nice. Right. All right. Man, I wish I had How now, here. brown cow. Yeah. How <laughs> now, brown cow. Mm. Mm, yes. The arsonist had webbed feet. Uh, all right. Do you yeah. want me to do the uh, the intro? <laughs> no, I don't want you to do the intro. I do the intro. Uh, no, I'm saying the the beginning music. To no, no, it. no, no. We're good. We'll skip that. Well, all right. Well, that that's, that's just remind me of another question. Actually, oh. do you guys have any 
I guess, kind of traditions when you warm up for a show? <laughs> we, uh... <laughs> <laughs> can we disclose that, Brandon? Yeah, we can disclose. That. Well, generally what happens is I get everything set up and these guys just drink beer and watch me do it. Yeah. Uh, but we'll, we'll have like a warm-up beer sometimes, so it's something we're not going to do on the show, but they're like, hey, check this out. And it'll be like, I don't know, something weird from Bells or something like that. Yeah. So we'll do that and just kind of like get into the flow. Uh, and then we'll just do it. So we'd play the intro music, and then I would say something like, uh, uh, oh, shoot, what do I say? Oh, come on, you got this. <laughs> <I know. clears throat> Happy Friday. Welcome in. Thank you for joining us. Michigan Beer Show, Tony Huff alongside me. And uh, we've got some uh, got some good stuff today. What are we going to do? Oh, you know, Brandon, I always go out and get some great stuff. Uh, we're going to be doing the uh, New Holland Dragon's Milk tonight. Uh, haven't done that in a while, so we're going to see the difference that we've had in the last couple of years. I got a Founders. You know, I love Founders. Uh, that's the Black Rye. Um, I've only had it a couple times. Uh, have you had that one before? I have had that. Uh, they had it on tap locally okay. at one of my establishments I frequent. Nice. And uh, it's good stuff, man. I'm excited to do it. Yeah, and then we're going to wrap up with the Hop Slam. Uh, it's been a big, uh, big year for Hop Slam. A lot of people are excited, saying that it's a lot different than uh, years past. So, yeah. we'll good thing we're that. gonna warm up with an eight percent work our way up to ten. <laughs> no, it's glad a, you made that choice. Well, you know, Dragon's Milk is eleven percent, so uh, we'll we're Super. gonna we're gonna finish strong. No, this is gonna that? be an entertaining episode. Everybody, <laughs> buckle in. Oh, I know, right? That's how the show would go. <laughs> well, yeah. excellent work. Now, uh, is there anything else you'd like to add about anything we talked about today? Mm. Uh, just uh, if you're looking. To get into craft beer and you're sort of leery about it, I know particularly in a college campus, might be more fond of something a bit lighter, perhaps a little more natural and light, may I say. Mm-hmm. Uh, don't do that. I would say just move right into the craft beer. You'll be much happier uh, in the future. Um, but don't be afraid to try new stuff. Mm-hmm. Like A lot of times you can just get a taste and, and you won't really know what you like until you until you try something. So. As far as craft beer goes, that's that's really what I have to say. Now, uh, just a quick recap. Where can listeners find your show online at the moment? You can uh, go to michiganbeershow.com, click on the subscribe link, and that will take you to your iTunes and put that feed in there. And then anytime we update, it'll be in your iTunes. And I believe we're also up on Stitcher Radio, so you can hear us there too. All right. Well, Tony and Brandon, thank you for coming in today. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Appreciate it. Exposure will return in just a minute. Welcome back to Exposure. I'm your host, Daniel Rizal.
We finish off the show tonight with Quinn Hoffman as he adventures into the historical significance of Dungeons and Dragons, featuring interviews with the author of Dungeons and Dreamers, Brad King, and the owner of the fortress here in East Lansing, Jeremy Plusko. In modern times, a lot of American culture has started to revolve around what was once considered nerdy. We see movies that focus on comic book superheroes and fantasy novels that were once considered only for geeks. And demonstrating deep knowledge on these subjects is now widely accepted. In 2013, James Franco and Stephen Colbert had what the internet dubbed as the Tolkien Showdown. The crowd cheered as Colbert made James Franco look like he had never even opened a Tolkien book with his astounding knowledge of Galadriel, the Lady of the Wood. And this is all happening on national television between two celebrities in the forefront of pop culture. As we continue to drive as a community towards these nerdy habits, we're starting to see a culture that's constructed by seemingly unseen forces. The things that weren't popular at the time are now the base for what is considered pop culture. So tonight we're going to look into perhaps the biggest unseen influence in this geek-driven world. Dungeons and Dragons. Okay, I know what you're thinking. Frick off, Quinn. We all know what Dungeons & Dragons is. Well, you're right. Everyone has heard of it. But do we know how much it's really influenced video games, movies, and general pop culture today? As a kid growing up, I personally never got the chance to play it. Whereas World of Warcraft and Lord of the Rings were getting cool, D&D was still considered too nerdy for most of my friends. Although it sounds silly, I found a lot of people felt the same way. Or did you just uh, immediately start well, playing? Well, I knew about it in high school, but never played until college, so... Yeah, it was the same for me. Those are members of the Spartan Board Gamers Club. I sat in on one of their weekly games of Dungeons & Dragons, and they expressed some of the same feelings I felt. No, I, don't, I wasn't aware of anyone that played in my high school that I knew of. So okay, there was no one that could my play. My friends didn't really do anything with it, so that was pretty much it. He struggled finding anyone to play with before college. It sounded all too familiar. It's actually pretty hard to find people ready to play until you get into a huge pool of people like you do when you're at college. But it's such a powerful cultural factor. I mean, who hasn't heard of Dungeons and Dragons? But then, why haven't as many people played it? Things like geek culture. Because really 3 5 has about a hundred extra books, satanic cults, or things like that. Okay, okay, let's backtrack. Let's go back to where all this began. Where did the game come from? Uh, my name's Jeremy Plesko. Um, I am the owner here at Fortress Comics and Games, and uh, pretty much uh, purveyor of all things geeky, I guess. Jeremy owns a local shop in East Lansing that focuses mostly on card games and tabletop games, like Dungeons & Dragons. I've owned the store for, uh, this is going on my fifth year, the... Store's been here since, I want to say, 1998, I believe was the open. With miniatures games, uh, we have a, war, a pretty big Warhammer 40k following. Then we have uh, some Hordes and War Machine, other uh, other miniature games as well that are played. And then, of course, role-playing game-wise, you know, we support everything Dungeons & Dragons and Pathfinder, which is a version of Dungeons & Dragons, etc. I mean, as far as role-playing games go, it sort of is the... I mean, there were other games out there for like miniatures games, but Dungeons and Dragons sort of form or like sprung up from like historical miniatures games. So it's kind of in what we consider a like role playing game. It's kind of the first 
true to what, like, you know, since the 70s, it's role-playing games have been. But first does not always make you the most popular. Warhammer 40k is kind of the most popular miniature game that we deal with, and um, Warhammer 40k is actually probably closer to, um, is probably closer to, like, some of the miniature games like uh, Chainmail, which was the game that when they had a miniatures game, it was Chainmail, and then they decided to kind of adapt that and do like a more role-playing oriented game, and that became Dungeons & Dragons. So actually, some of the games, while still heavily inspired by Dungeons & Dragons to this day, kind of are the, you know, the miniature games are kind of the predecessor to what role-playing games kind of sprung from. Miniatures is a term Jeremy kept using to describe these games like Warhammer. It's kind of like a more complicated chess, but for like old military battles. Okay, he explained it better. The idea is they there were a lot of historical miniatures, as in, um, like, let's say 1950, 1960. Um, there were a fair number of miniatures games where you painted revolutionary soldiers or you painted up little tin or pewter or lead, actually, in a lot of cases. Actually, lead was the most common. Uh, you painted little lead figurines of... Uh, sometimes they were even, like, um, like uh, the War, uh, War of the Roses. Sometimes they were, um, like, different historical games and then you would use dice and other things and you'd reenact these battles and see if you as a general could uh you know could win on waterloo instead you know instead of losing a lot waterloo you know historical miniatures and like uh, battlefield miniature games do predate dungeons and dragons but its influences as a game and as like kind of a has kind of influenced them to change and you know in a way like it's kind of a kind of a cycle or it's kind of a circle you know what i mean like it's while they're while the type of game they are is older, the very content of the game has a like kind of moved along to Dungeons and Dragons and So from those games we got D and D. Um and so that kind of those games existed. And then Gary Gygax and a couple of other guys, um, they decided to make the game Chainmail, which was try to make like a fantasy version of that. Try to make a more you know, what if, you know, instead of just having soldiers, there was a barbarian in there, and what happens if there was other stuff, you know, very, very, I guess, very pulp, you know, pulp fantasy material. Um, so they tried to mix a little bit more of that, less historical, more fantasy. They made a miniatures game, and then they were like, well, what happens if we, and D&D kind of sprung from, after they made that game, they wanted a version where you, instead of just playing as like a general moving miniatures on a battlefield and rolling dice, what happens if there was a game where you try to take on the persona of just one of those models? And instead of fighting, you know, on a battlefield, what happens if it was in a dungeon and you had to go fight a dragon or you had to go fight a demon or maybe just a orc or goblin? And so that was kind of where that sprung. This guy is trying to tell a slightly more narrative, not slightly, extremely more narrative, uh, a more narrative version of those games instead of like a more, I am pushing 50 models across the battlefield at your unit of 50 models. And then over here, I'm going to move 20 here. You have a character that you play. Um, which is noteworthy because it is not yourself, nor are you some third-party general who, you know, is, you know, kind of the eye of God standing down, you know, staring down at a battlefield, moving things like video game style, like Total War or other games. Instead, you are a single actor in that, and your role is to build, play, and react and do things as that actor. Um, so, like, one of the big things is the immersion of yourself as a single actor in the, in the game. So, I mean, I think they, they hit the nail on the head on something that the community wanted, but they didn't know they wanted, because before that, you know, there wasn't really a large market. There wasn't one. 
Before that, there was some very strange people who did it, you know, who made up rules and did things themselves, but there was no mass-marketed game. So it's a little like a strategy game, but they threw in some acting and personality in there. Oh, and people thought it was Satan worship. And to some degree, there was at the time a religion a, among the extremely conservative too. I mean, we, I mean, we'll stand these people. You know, to this day, there are still people who believe this, but it is by playing a role by playing a role playing game that has demons in it, you must be channeling Satan into the world type of thing. It's when I sat in on a game with the board gaming club. They confirmed the satanic suspicions society had when it first developed. Well, I mean, there's going to be issues about that uh, ever since, you know, the original uh, D&D came out, second edition, I think it was, where uh, I think it was an MSU where people were worried about, you know, satanic rituals in the steam pipes. Uh, But it's, it's such a... It's, it's really hard as someone who plays it to see where even they're coming from with thinking there's satanic rituals involved. It's, you know, me and my nerd friends go get some Doritos and sit around laughing with each other for about four hours and go home. So the game had a rough start, but I could see why people may not have been wholly accepting at first. It's very clear, even just sitting in on one, that it's not a normal okay, board it game. It goes in order of who we, we ganked at what point. <laughs> yes. Yeah, we, we, killed, we got the, the dragon heart. We ran from the gin. We, yep, we, we went to the night hag. We're looking to get the night hag's soul bag. We're looking to uh, take that from her. So Actually, you were going to a party. I asked the dungeon masters to give me a quick summary of the game. Yep, uh, so we end up running the game. So the way that D&D works is that you have uh, someone running called the Dungeon Master, kind of setting up the rules and setting up the encounters, and then the, everyone else at the table are players who kind of run through the adventure. You have a real focus on role-playing your character. So a lot of games, like let's say Clue, you just have a piece uh, of plastic or whatever else, uh, and you don't really have much backstory behind the character or anything like that. Dungeons and Dragons is very customizable. Any type of character you want to play, you can play. And it has a heavy focus on being able to show what makes your character different. So basically you just make your character and try to play your role in an adventure. It was kind of like they were all just telling a story together. Oh, and with a butt ton of stats. We got here hit points, armor class, strength, dex, constitution, intelligence, wisdom, charisma... All of them are uh, different stats that you use for different things in the game. Uh, initiative, which you heard us rolling earlier, uh, is about turn order, and whoever gets the highest number gets to go first, and then the next highest, and so on. Okay, so now we know how the basics of the game work. So why is this important? How has all of this affected our culture? For this question, we turn back to our friend at the fortress, Jeremy. Had a huge impact on just how role-playing games in general work, uh, since many of them have used certain parts of their rules or adapted small portions to be slightly different. Uh, but, I mean, huge numbers of role-playing games. He was essentially telling me that almost all modern RPG games, video games or otherwise, have been almost directly inspired by D&D. Anytime you see a game where you play a character with stats like strength, constitution, intelligence, that all started with Dungeons & Dragons. That's kind of, I mean, that's kind of thing too. Is Dungeons and Dragons was heavily influenced by like Lord of the Rings, so like you have a lot of influences, kind of back and forth. But at the same time, without Dungeons and Dragons, I don't think we would have had the same kind of a large fan base that would be reading Harry Potter books and going to see a Lord of the Rings movie. Like, I mean, I think before like you know the mid seventies, I don't think 
you would have seen a large theatrical release of a movie such that, I mean, the Hobbit, the Hobbit movie or Hobbit like movie was a cartoon from like early eighties and that was mainly consumed by Dungeons and Dragons players. So, and I mean, that was not even a full, like, you know, blockbuster theater release. And so in a weird kind of way, Dungeons and Dragons was inspired by Lord of the Rings, but at the same time, it allowed Lord of the Rings to gain a very large kind of footing in the populace. So interesting things like that, in my opinion, at least. Yeah. This is all well and good, but this is just one man who's played a lot of games. I can't really just take his word for all this, right? Enter Brad King. Much of the first 15 or 20 years of computer game development, all of the people that were developing those games, many of them, most of them, grew up playing Dungeons & Dragons. Brad was the co-author of a book titled Dungeons & Dreamers, which essentially tackles the same question. What is the historical and cultural significance of D&D? Text adventures in the 70s through first-person you know, games in the 80s, and then into the development of the massively multiplayer um, online role-playing game, all of the people that were developing those games, many of them, most of them, grew up playing Dungeons & Dragons. Um, and that was their first exposure back in the early 70s to like this community-type storytelling. And so as computers came online and as they became more pervasive, all these kids that were playing these games with their friends wanted to recreate that kind of game um, on this new thing that they were gravitating to. So as we were going around and reporting the history of the game for the book, um, people like Richard Garriott and Warren Spector and, and John Carmack and John Romero, all of these people who developed Doom and the Ultima series and things like that, not only played but were fanatical about playing and drew very specific lines from the games they created and these big, lush, virtual worlds you can run around and do everything, to wanting to recreate that experience of playing around a table with a group of friends, um, you know, this tabletop game. So that was, to us, that was one of the most interesting parts of the story, is that without Dungeons & Dragons, obviously computer games would still exist, but they would look very differently because that game was communal, and it was about, you know, friendship and forming bonds with people and playing together. Um, and winning wasn't necessarily about getting the most points. It was about the old cliche with sports. It was about how you played the game. Um, and so rule structures were very loose. Um, and that leads to things like sandbox games today, right, where you are in virtual worlds where you can go do anything you want to. That was sort of the essence of Dungeons & Dragons. I mean, it was definitely the start of um, a certain strand of games. So there were people at MIT in the 60s that made Space War and things like that, and those games were based on science fiction books. But when you talk about things like World of Warcraft or um, Doom or Ultima uh, or even like the Medal of War series or, or, or things of that nature, uh, games that are worlds in which you can do anything you want to, and winning, there's lots of different ways to get to a winning strategy. All of that traces itself back to Dungeons and, and Dragons um, because it, 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 what's really intriguing to me is that modern developers, people that are developing really after you know, the new millennium, have less direct connection to Dungeons and Dragons, although it's coming back around now. But they were making games based on games that these other people made, um, Doom, 
Quake, those kinds of games had, uh, you know, have been at the epicenter of a lot of what people have tried to recreate. And those get, I mean, Doom and Quake were made based on characters that John Carmack and John Romero played in Dungeons, you know, Dungeons and Dragons. So are modern games borrowing directly from D&D? Not necessarily. But are they borrowing from games that borrowed directly from D&D in the past? Definitely. There's a reason that orcs show up in games, right? There's a reason that you have different classes of um, characters in these games. And that was, that was a basis of this tabletop game. But D&D isn't even 50 years old yet. How could it have influenced so much in such a small amount of time? Well, it's, it's one of those happenstances of history, right? So, like, tabletop gaming had been around. So, you know, Dungeons & Dragons grows out of this, this idea of war gaming, which has been around for hundreds of years. That in and of itself wasn't new. It was the game that, that um, sort of captured the cultural zeitgeist of the time, got very popular with the kind of people who happened to also be gravitating towards this new personal computer that was developing. So you have to remember, in the early 70s, most computers were at colleges. They were mainframes. They were big, giant computers. People didn't have them in their homes. And so in the mid-70s and the late-70s, as the computer starts to become a thing that people have or more people have access to, these kids that are playing this you know, fantasy game are also attracted to this new thing, the computer and the Internet. So before the web, there was still the Internet, and you could connect to people all over the world. People like Richard Bartle, who's over in um, England, makes MUD, right, the multi-user dungeon, which is basically a text adventure Dungeons & Dragons on a college computer that anybody from around the world can play. And MUD's Again, MUDs are also one of the influences of computer games today. The rule sets and the ways in which you interact come from that. MUD is a representation of Dungeons & Dragons. So it is this sort of happenstance of this five- or six-year period where the game comes online, Dungeons & Dragons happens, this group of people play it, this group of people also happens to be attracted to this new computer network thing that's happening. And so as they're creating things, they're creating the game that they play. I think it's instructive, you know, when we talk about geek culture, like I, I was a geek, I was a nerd, and continue to be that. I find it fascinating that the games that were being made weren't sports games, right? People weren't making football games and basketball games. That was certainly a thing, but the games that drove the early development were really more of these communal-style Dungeons & Dragons-type games, whether it be Mud, whether it be Zork, whether it be Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, all games that were created, whether it be Ultima, those were created because the people that were driving that were D&D players. Okay, so people who play D&D just by chance happen to be the people who are creating today's popular culture. So does that mean things are changing? Are we getting nerdier as a society? I've now I've lived through four of these decades, so I can tell you that it's changed. Um, the ways in which we view them are differently. I mean, if, look, if you just look around um, and see what's happening in the popular culture, what's the biggest movie franchise? It's Marvel, right? Like, that's comic book stuff. That was, for many, many years, um, people like me read them, and that's who read them. And now it is a part of the general culture, and, and I use geek culture sort of... Um, I don't use it generally in real life because what I tell people is 
so much of what we used to do is now part of what everybody does. And it, we don't get to have ownership of that anymore. Um, my wife, who was a ballet dancer, she's now seen all the Marvel movies, right? And when the Marvel movies come out, we watch Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., like she gets excited to go see them. That wouldn't have happened 30 years ago. And I know it wouldn't have because it didn't, right? It happens today for very specific kinds of reasons. So I think that it is more pervasive than it used to be. This has created a cultural identity for people that grew up doing these things and claiming them as their own, as, even as they felt sort of ostracized from society. Now that everybody's claiming, you know, that they are a geek and that they are into that, that's created some strife. And we see things like that in gamer games, right, where we, we see a group of people who are um, sort of unwilling to let go of anything and don't, and don't think anybody else has the right to that culture. But that's a very tiny percentage of what those folks do. If you go to E3, if you go to Gen Con, if you go to Comic-Con, any of those places, it is a vast and diverse group of people that do those things. So everything from the Marvel Cinematic Universe, which makes billions of dollars, and that's not because there's 30 kids in a basement going to see it a million times. It's because everybody around the world is seeing it. All the way down to these conferences uh, and the kinds of things we're creating. I think that maybe people still characterize folks like that, but it's a, it's a remnant of a time that hasn't really reflected reality in 20 years. So I think the stigma remains on quote-unquote nerdy culture, but I think Dylan from the Board Gaming Club summed it up best. Uh, and you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's nerdy, but you know, what isn't these days? So are you convinced? Is D&D just a super nerdy game from the 80s, or is it something more? Here at the station, we decided to give it a try. So we rounded up some of our coworkers and honored our nerdy forefathers. Taunt him. Okay, so now you can take your action, which will be uh, an attack. What, what, what My name is Dom Korzeki. I'm the promotions director here, and uh, I am a high elf druid. My name is Phil Beard. I am the engineering director here at the Impact, and I am a rogue gnome. I'm Dakota Johnston. I'm the video director here at Impact. Uh, I am a rogue gnome, and I just want to point out that I created that character before Phil Beard. Uh, my name is Kevin Cordes. I am the assistant program director here, and I am playing a human ranger. Yeah, that beats his AC. For Impact Exposure, I'm Quinn Hoffman. When you're deep in a dark dungeon and the cleric's down and dying and you've taken all the potions you had left and you feel like you are doomed because the deep That's it for tonight. All episodes of Exposure can be found online at impact89fm.org. Special thanks to our general manager, Ed Glazer, our station manager, Gabriela Saldivia, and our producer, Quinn Hoffman. You've been listening to Exposure with your host, Dana Rizal. This thing, it came from hell. It seems like it can't be killed. Well, don't ever give up. Not all fights are won by skill. Some are won by luck. Don't ever give in. You've got to keep on trying till you lose or you win. Cross your fingers, roll the die. Wait with hope for the big 2 Cross your fingers, roll the die. Let it go, let it go, let it go. Let it roll, let it roll, let it roll. Don't give up yet. No, don't ever quit. There's always a chance of a 
Broadcasting from the campus of Michigan State University, you've been listening to Impact Exposure.